Hello, friends. I hope you had a successful Hanukkah and welcome to an exciting shiur with Rabbi Dr. Henry Abramson, exploring our holiest site, the temple. About our speaker, Henry Abramson serves as a dean of Toronto University in Brooklyn, New York. Around sec, t- t- slight glitch. Here we go. Okay. Henry Abramson serves as a dean of Toronto University in, the Bro- in Brooklyn, New York, a native of Northern Ontario. His online lectures have been viewed over 9 million times. His current project is a three-volume history of the Jewish people, forthcoming from Koran Publishers in Jerusalem. It is an honor to have him with us. Thank you so much, all, for joining us in person, for all those who will be watching later. Thank you so much, Dr. Abramson. The floor is yours. You're you're, you're on mute. Thank you. I was just thinking it's kind of strange to say the floor is yours because we are certainly not sharing a floor, not even sharing a room, but I guess the screen is yours or the microphone is yours. Anyways, I'm I'm very grateful to be here and speaking with all of you. I should note, by the way, I just put it in the chat. I'm not a rabbi, just a regular guy. I don't know why people think I'm a rabbi. It just comes out like that, I guess. But um, my goal for today is uh, to give you a very quick overview of what we know from a historical perspective of the temples in Jerusalem. I'm referring here in the plural, of course, because there were two temples, the first and the second temple, and maybe we'll have some opportunity to reflect on the larger ramifications of this history. Um, We were originally planning to actually do this in two lectures, but we had some scheduling conflict, so I'm going to condense two already very complicated topics into one presentation, uh, which is somewhat uh, more difficult to do because I don't know very much about all of your backgrounds and how familiar you are with this complex history. So I'm trying to, uh, I've tried to craft this presentation for intelligent lay people who maybe have a certain degree of familiarity with the subject For those of you who are much more invested into this historical period, um, I hope that you won't find it too superficial, but for the rest of you, I hope that this will be a useful overview. Uh, I'll share my screen now and just take you to my presentation. Here we go. Can everyone see uh, the screen that shows what do we know about the temple? Just nod so I can tell if in fact you can see that. Yeah, okay, great. So, the, uh, the topic is, what do we know about the temple in Jerusalem, and how do we know it? And in reality, that's one of the most complex questions for anything related to the biblical period. Because as we shall see, there are really two broad extremes of opinion when it comes to how we deal with biblical text for historical purposes. Uh, the the kind of 19th century perspective, uh, and this is a little bit of a caricature because many historians will, you know, it's hard to find anyone who sits on the extreme, but uh, the maximalist perspective says, well, what are you talking about? You know, the Bible is replete with historical data. If you read the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, oh my gosh, those are fantastic works of history, the equal of any of the Greeks or Roman historians, Herodotus and Tacitus and so on, really phenomenal works of history. And on the other hand, you have the other extreme, a school known as the minimalists, who say you know, we we can't rely on any historical data uh, percolating out of the biblical text, 
for a whole host of reasons, which include, for example, um, for uh, from a historical as opposed to a theological perspective, we're not precisely sure who wrote these texts and when. Uh, is the book of Daniel, for example, really describing uh, events that occurred in Babylonia? Or is it uh, actually describing a period of time several hundred years later and is merely set in the period of Babylonian captivity? These are really important and difficult questions that many biblical critics offer. Uh, the, the, most historians, however, are loath to trash any kind of valuable data, even if it requires a heavy degree of uh, interpretation to understand what exactly is the, the kernel of value from a historical perspective. And so most historians find themselves somewhere between the maximalists and the minimalists on uh, these major questions. So when we're looking at the Bible as a historical source, a lot of the material that we want to really explore, uh, including some of the major figures of the Bible, like King David, King Solomon, and so on, you know, it's, it's hard to really find good non-biblical data to flesh out the story, to corroborate it, and so on. So taking that kind of um, caveat about how we deal with the temple, uh, the period that we're looking at today, a very long period of about a thousand years, um, you know, it depends on what we know is very much dependent on how we know it. If we take a kind of a fundamentalist approach to say, well, everything in the Bible is absolutely true at exactly the way it is read at face value, you say, well, there you go. You've got tons of history. What else is there to know? But if you take it from a minimalist perspective and say, wait a second, this is essentially an internal family story. We don't know exactly when these texts came to us, in what form, for what purpose. Can we really rely on them as history or do they fall into a different kind of category like literature or um, legend or mythology, things like that? These are very real questions that are asserted in the academy as we try to deal with this ancient period. So, but what do we know? What can we rely on and, and how do we know it? The temple, of course, exists today, at least the, the temple mount exists today. It's an area several football fields in size. Um, I could assume that when I say football, you would understand me to understand the game played with a ball and kicked with your feet, which would be fair enough, because I don't even know exactly how large a European football stadium is, uh, but it's probably about the same size as an American football stadium, and uh, the, the Temple Mount encompasses several of those football fields. The earliest Temple Mount, as we shall see in a moment, was uh, quite a bit smaller, probably closer to one football field. There are several structures on the Temple Mount today, despite the fact that it originally housed the Jewish temples, uh, the first temple, and then later the second temple. Uh, it has been built up since it was raised by the Romans, uh, and it has several important Muslim structures on it. Uh, to the left, the iconic Dome of the Rock, which is built over uh, a, a remarkable slab of basalt that is understood to be the foundation stone in Jewish tradition, the navel of the world. Uh, and then to the south, you see the silver dome, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. These are all built on the enlarged Temple Mount grounds today. So we, we have this physical location today 
what do we know about its biblical history? So we have several different places where we can go to garner data about this history. The first, of course, is the Tanakh. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures give us a very detailed description of the architectural uh, creation of the temple, the grounds for the creation of the temple, uh, its dates of existence, and so on. And here's the, the basic schematic that we get from Tanakh, which is corroborated by a lot of data, but once you get past the sort of skeletal structure of this chronology, it's hard to find really quality details about what that temple was like and what Jewish life was surrounding that temple as its ritual center. The first temple is built famously by King Solomon. Uh, one of the things that is exceptionally valuable about uh, the Bible as a historical source is it gives us extremely rich, um, you know, to use Shakespearean as a, a, a comparative device would, uh, you know, shame the Bible because in many ways it's far more pithy and powerful than even Shakespeare's expression. Um, the Bible gives us tremendous, you know, uh, character uh, development and, and details about the major figures involved. Uh, King David wishes to create this temple, but God invalidates him from doing so. Uh, the text says because he is a, a warlike individual, a man of blood, but that task eventually devolves upon his son, King Solomon, who was associated with this first major center. It is essentially a graduation from the portable tabernacle, which uh, was described in the book of Exodus through De Deuteronomy as traveling through the desert with the Jews, with the, I shouldn't really say Jews, let's say the Israelites, but I will habitually refer to them as Jews anyways, because that term really develops later. But the tabernacle is later graduated into a permanent physical fixed structure as opposed to this wandering structure under King Solomon. Then it is destroyed dramatically some 400 years later uh, by the Babylonian conqueror Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar then in turn is destroyed by the Persian forces who allow the Jews to return and rebuild the second temple. So the seam of time between the destruction of the first and the reconstruction of the, of the second uh, all occur within the 500s before the Common Era. The dates that are typically given are 586 before the Common Era for the destruction, 519 for the reconstruction of the second temple. That second temple then stands all the way up until the first millennium, uh, and it is destroyed in the context of the Roman-Jewish war that erupted in the year 66 of the Common Era, and uh, ultimately the destruction of the temple is the, the most dramatic concluding event of that disastrous conflict, disastrous, of course, for the Jews of Judea. And then finally, the structures, so it's basically, it's, it's a flat land. It's used by the Romans literally as a landfill, as a refuse dump. And that was quite intentional because the Romans wanted to wipe out any, uh, you know, sense of Jewish nationhood, of statehood, and prevent any further rebellions. They were unsuccessful in this regard. There was a second major rebellion under Bar Kokhba around the year 132, and of course, 
the Jews as a civilization far outlasted the Roman Empire and ultimately, amazingly, were able to return to Jerusalem, although they have not, of course, rebuilt the temple a third time. The structures that were then cleared away and built on top of that by the Muslims, the Dome of the Rock that I showed you earlier, uh, those were constructed in the 8th century, so quite a bit later after this period. We're going to focus primary, primarily on the 1,000 years from the reign of King Solomon, the vast majority of which is only supported by the data that we have in the Tanakh itself. Uh, and then we have much better data to confirm its destruction under Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century and its rebuilding. And then, of course, a lot of data about the destruction of its uh, the second temple in the year 70. If you have a look at this remarkable reconstruction of the temple mount itself, not so much the actual temple buildings, but the larger structure uh, by Lien Rittmeyer, who does a lot of amazing archaeological uh, reconstructions. You can see that originally the temple mount was square, uh, and that's the way it was under King Hezekiah, somewhat after King Solomon. And there's kind of like a, a stub of a building attached here, because we don't know precisely what that first temple looked like. Uh, and then it is expanded slightly under the uh, pre-Maccabean uh, Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes. That is, of course, the Antiochus of Hanukkah infamy. By the way, uh, it, what time is it over there by you? It's probably about 9 or 10 p.m., is that correct? So if that's the case, it's still Hanukkah by us here. So I'm still, you know, I'm still uh, sort of working off my Sufganiyot and uh, I have a couple of kind of things to share with you. Uh, the Hashmonaim, that is that Maccabean generation that uh, fought off the Seleucids and reasserted Jewish independence, uh, expanded the Temple Mount somewhat. There's actually evidence of this in the construction of the exterior walls to this very day. And then uh, King Herod, who was a pro-Roman king of Israel, who ruled for several decades, a very, very powerful and effective leader, who was uh, quite brutal, but his brutality was matched by his passion for public works. He had all kinds of, of amazing uh, construction going on throughout Israel, major ports and aqueducts and coliseums and things like that. And he built up, of course, the primary ritual center of Jerusalem, the temple, with this massive expansion of the Temple Mount. Uh, the walls that, that we see today, especially the Western Wall, are largely walls built by King Herod. And, of course, he uh, really expanded the, uh, the beauty and grandeur of the temple structures themselves, although the Romans destroyed them, so we don't know precisely what they look like. And this is what the uh, Temple Mount looks like today with the Muslim structures on top of it, uh, roughly in the same place where we believe that the actual temple structures originally stood. So that's the, the geography of the area that we're going to look at. And most of that data we can derive from Tanakh without too much controversy. Now, we also have, and this is especially useful for historians, we have corroborating data from outside Tanakh. Tanakh, of course, is incredibly valuable, but it is written with a particular perspective. It is written uh, largely to reinforce a particular Judeo-centric view of the world. 
to uh, emphasize the importance of Jewish worship and so on. And historical data is largely subordinated to that overarching goal. We have, however, outside of the Tanakh itself, some really interesting written works that provide us with uh, data that usually fits very well with the biblical account. Um, on the left, you see a picture of Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the first century. He lived from about 37 to about the year 99 of the uh, common era, that is the first century of the common era. This is a 15th century rendition of him from the Nuremberg Chron Chronicle. Uh, Josephus is uh, an amazingly talented historian with a phenomenal flair for the dramatic, and he spent his entire career writing about Jewish history. He was uh, the first major Jewish historian and by and large the most successful but he has a lot of baggage that makes it difficult for us to somewhat understand what Josephus is all about. Uh, just looking at his background for a moment, he was, um, you know, he, he writes about himself quite a bit. He actually wrote an autobiography and all of his works have significant autobiographical information contained within them. Uh, he was apparently a very precocious young individual, so bright that at age 14, the elders of Jerusalem were seeking him out for guidance on matters of Torah and Halakha, which is kind of hard to believe, but, you know, we only have Josephus's word for it. Uh, and he became early on quite enamored of Rome. Rome was, of course, in control of Judea at that time. Uh, when uh, war broke out against the Romans, something which he was not enthusiastic about, uh, he was actually appointed to be the commander of the north, the commander of the Galilean forces. And he acquitted himself with great credit. He was apparently a brilliant warrior and strategist. We know this because he tells us so himself. However, he was ultimately um, forced to surrender to the emperor Vespasian, who was uh uh, surrounding the city Yotapata, where he and his soldiers were hiding out. Rather than surrender immediately, however, a group of them were gathered in an underground cave, and it was inevitable that they were going to be found. So Josephus suggested to the rest of them that, hey, you know, it, it would be such a shame if we were not to go down fighting, if we were to be like captured and then sold into slavery or who knows what, wouldn't it be so much more dignified for us to commit mass suicide? And I know what we should do. Um, we should like draw lots. And rather than, you know, each person killing themselves, killing themselves, which would be, he said, you know, an affront to God, uh, he says, rather what we should do is we'll draw lots and the first person will kill two or three other people, then we'll draw lots again, and the next person will kill two or three other people, and so on until we finally are left with one person alive who will be the only one who has to kill himself. Remarkably, Josephus ends up, they all say, okay, let's do it, but remarkably, Josephus ends up being one of the last two guys alive, and he turns to the other guy, and the two of them are supposed to commit suicide, and he says, wait, maybe we should rethink this for a second. And he suggests, you know, maybe we should be around to tell the tale of the heroism, our friends and things like that. And so they decide not to end their lives and they surrender to Vespasian. When they come out, um, 
Josephus uh, cleverly tells Vespasian that he believes he is going to be the new emperor, that in fact Josephus has prophetic powers. He sees that he will be ultimately elevated to be the emperor of Rome. Josephus decides not to kill him right away, but keeps him as a, as a captive. And then later when he sees Josephus's tremendous value as a culture broker, as someone who could act as a translator, not only for the language, but also for the scenario, someone who knows the terrain, someone who knows the culture and so on. So he ends up hiring Josephus as his Jewish expert. At this point, he is also elevated to become the emperor of Rome. He's called to Rome where he ultimately becomes the emperor. And uh, he leaves Josephus behind uh, in the uh, toe of his son, Titus, who leads the rest of the war against the Jews. Josephus writes a remarkable, amazingly, hugely valuable account of that war called the Jewish War. And then he goes on to write a massive multi-volume history of the Jewish people called Jewish Antiquities, all in Greek for a literary audience. He's hugely popular. He goes back with Titus after the war to Rome, where he is a celebrity. He's like on Oprah every night talking about his next book. And uh, he's estranged from his people uh, because, after all, he, he did um, turn coat. He did uh, become a traitor to the Jewish cause. But at the same time, he's also trapped in his Jewish identity because that's his job now is to present Judaism to the rest of the world. And every single word he writes, and this is returning to our question of how can we rely on Josephus? Every single word he writes is for the reading pleasure of his patron slash captor, Titus. So he, he wants to, you know, portray the Jews in a positive light. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to portray the Romans in a negative light. He wants to somehow make the Jews like worthwhile enemies of the Romans, valorous and so on. Uh, but he remains our primary source for almost everything that happens in the first century and an extremely important source for periods before it. So even though a lot of the data we have about the temple comes from Josephus, and Josephus is a really complicated historian to work with, nevertheless, he's quite prolific and he provides us with a tremendous amount of useful material. We also have a tremendous amount of material written by the rabbis, and these are somewhat less suspect in terms of their complicated allegiance to the Romans as opposed to the uh, you know, traditionalist Jewish community. But of course, the rabbis have an agenda too. The rabbis are, like Tanakh, wanting to validate a particular view of what Judaism is, not surprisingly, the rabbinic view of what Judaism is. And in the first century, that was not at all the only ideology that was circulating throughout Israel, uh, claiming the hearts and minds of Jews, trying to pull them in one direction or other. Uh, furthermore, a lot of the rabbinic writings that we rely on were typically written long after the temple was destroyed. Some of the oldest writings do go back to the uh, the temple period. For example, uh, the Mishnah, Pirkei Avos, quite a few of those oral traditions can trace themselves back to statements made uh, before the destruction of the temple. But the vast majority of rabbinic literature was set to writing 
long after. The Mishnah in particular was set to writing around the year 200. The temple was destroyed in the year 70. So even though the Mishnah is relying on earlier oral testimony, uh, it is you know, set to writing in the, with the, the knowledge and the perspective of a destroyed temple. We also have non-rabbinic writings of a sectarian nature, uh, such as the remarkable Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which were a huge cache, a library, really, of documents that were collected by a nearby community in the Judean desert called the uh, Hirbet Qumran, or the Qumran community. Here you can see the archaeological dig of the Qumran community, and it's believed that they stashed all of their valuable religious documents, uh, some of which overlap the Tanakh. They have virtually every book of Tanakh. The only exception is the book of Esther, if I remember correctly. And they have lots more material in their library as well. All kinds of bizarre kind of like apocalyptic texts and manuals of instruction. Uh, and it's scholars believe that this mysterious community, which was disbanded in the first century, was likely some kind of you know, weird kind of Jewish ashram-like location where people practiced fairly ascetic rules of behavior, uh, dining in silence and, you know, lots of stages of spiritual development where people were slowly initiated into one stage after another stage and so on. All kinds of really bizarre things, which Josephus tells us about. He says he spent about four years in a community that sounds a lot like this must have been, where, you know, they were they were given a shovel and told that uh, they can only defecate once a day outside of the camp, and the shovel was to take care of their own business, and they were not allowed to defecate at all on the Sabbath, which is kind of a bizarre sort of thing, but they were kind of bizarre people, I think, in many ways. The Dead Sea Scrolls, however, which were likely written by a group that sought to separate themselves from what they sought as the, saw as the corrupt influences on the temple, uh, have a lot of critical views of the temple and the temple rituals were associated with it. And we can use these texts, albeit with a lot of care and consideration, to understand what, what happened in the temple itself. And then finally, the last group of texts, of course, are early Christian documents. Because uh, even though obviously Christianity went in a rather different direction after the destruction of the temple, uh, nevertheless, the earliest Christian documents, uh, the synoptic gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, maybe some of the writings of Paul, they're written really in the, the first, well, maybe uh, first four or five decades after the destruction of the temple, maybe a little bit earlier, and they give us some perspective from, again, a community that sees itself as taking a tr different trajectory than the rest of the Jewish world. But the vast majority of all of the authors are, in fact, Jewish, who see Judaism going in a different direction. Uh, and they have a critical viewpoint of the temple. Um, this famous scene, uh, which is actually a, a 16th century uh, uh, representation of it, and the, the uh, the author of the painting, Peter Bruca, the elder, obviously had no clue what the temple looked like, but he sort of like created this oriental-like structure and uh, described the various hangers on around it engaged in, in uh, various disreputable activities. Nevertheless, the uh, Christian writings do give us some sense 
of what the temple meant to them. And by extension, we can derive some historical data. So those are just a sampling of the kinds of literary texts that we can bring to bear to understand something about the temple, in particular, the second temple where these are much more numerous. And then finally, most fascinatingly, I think, is there's tons of really cool archeological evidence. Now the temple grounds themselves have never been excavated for obvious reasons. This is an active holy site revered intensely by Jews and Muslims and to a somewhat lesser degree by Christians. Uh, the idea of going in there with backhoes or even with toothbrushes is hotly contested. And uh, so it's simply, you know, not happened. There have been a couple of moments where there were some renovations conducted to the Temple Mount, uh, sometimes conducted in a very inappropriate manner. But nevertheless, uh, you know, going through the landfill afterwards has resulted in some remarkable finds. But for the time being, the kinds of tools that archaeologists have have been able to look around the exterior areas of the temple and look at the structure of the Temple Mount itself for many clues as to the history of the region. One of the most fascinating areas um, was described actually in yesterday's New York Times. I just chose it because uh, for our class simply because it is really so timely, is using, um, uh, what was the term they used there? It's uh, something like magneto paleontology. I think I got that term totally wrong. I mangled it. But basically, apparently, when you heat something up to a super hot temperature, if it has certain kind of chemical uh, contacts in it, it changes the uh, the uh, magnetic polarity of the materials inside that that thing that you're looking at. And you can actually calculate the date upon which that occurred. This to me sounds like, you know, it's kind of magic. I, I studied all of my history in the humanities department. And at a certain point when scientists start talking, my eyes start glazing over. But apparently this is true. And new scholars have been working on this uh, PhD candidates in uh, Hebrew University and looking at the remains of uh, areas that were destroyed and that historically we've always associated with the uh, various destructions of Jerusalem. And they are confirming, in fact, that, yeah, when we do this kind of magneto-paleo dating, we can actually find that it confirms the accounts that we have in Tanakh and really quite fascinating. And then there's a the conventional archaeology where they basically dig things up and find things that make perfect sense with the historical record. Sometimes they find things that make no sense with the historical record, and that's when historians and archaeologists tend to clash. But, for example, here, discovering Babylonian-style uh, arrowheads, their Scythian design used by the Babylonians, uh, from the destruction layer where archaeologists will actually work with uh, stratigraphy. They will actually layer the uh, the finds in the ground and they'll be able by where it is found to actually date it to a particular time. So a lot of the material uh, that we'll be discussing has been verified by archaeologists and is really quite useful in that regard. Okay, so that's kind of like the introduction, which took more than half of this class, excuse me, but tells us how we know, what we know is very much predicated on how we know it. So looking at the first temple, this is one artist's rendition of the first temple. In order to do this, we have to rely entirely on the literary descriptions 
in Tanakh, primarily in the book of Kings, uh, which has very lengthy descriptions, but sometimes difficult to decipher. Um, but as you can see, it is uh, a fairly modest structure by modern standards. The temple, as it was renovated by Herod, was quite a bit more magnificent. Uh, the Talmud, again, written much, much later, uh, about a thousand years after the destruction of the first temple, tells us that the, the first temple was characterized by a whole series of miracles that, you know, for example, you would put the the sacrificial offering on the altar and fire would come from heaven to consume it. That's a pretty obvious and straightforward sign of divine favor. The second temple, on the other hand, although it was uh, on its externalities far more grand, it didn't have any of those miraculous uh, occurrences associated with it. So that's perhaps the most significant difference from a theological point of view between the first and the second temple. Of course, we don't have any other data to uh, tell us about that. Uh, but the temple does tell us a lot about the nature of Jewish society. The impetus for the temple, um, as described in Tanakh, is that uh, people were essentially going their own way for and setting up DIY temples all over Israel. They were setting up these high places, the Hebrew term is bamot, and they were essentially offering their own sacrifices for a whole host of reasons. And there was no rule that said you couldn't do that. Um, and so in the book of Samuel, David is enjoined to end this practice and to centralize worship in Jerusalem, first by bringing the movable tabernacle there, and then later by constructing a permanent housing for the altar and so on. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was not carried out by David, but rather by his son. So looking at the archaeological finds in Israel, we discover that, in fact, this is quite was quite effective. There are remarkably few remains from the period of the first temple of these local sacrificial uh, uh, locations, which suggests, I mean, it's an argument from silence, an argument we didn't find any, so therefore it must mean that uh, this is happening. You can't really make that argument, but you, you, it does definitely support the notion to some degree. It's kind of like, you know, when they, when they study the, uh, the landfill that is often filled with bones of animals that are consumed. And you see from the first century in particular that there it's a, a vanishing number of non-kosher animals are consumed in areas known to be settled by Jews, which seems to be a fairly strong argument for the fact that uh, the Jews were keeping kosher. Uh, but let's move on from that because I don't want to get too far distracted. Where we see the exceptions to the rule are especially illustrative. Uh, one of the most important exceptions to the rule is on Mount Grizim, uh, which is outside modern-day Shechem or Nablus. And this is the location of the Samaritan Temple. Uh, the Samaritans were a group of people um, who are known to us from the biblical account as being foreign uh, imports to the land of Israel by the uh, Assyrians, uh, who specifically practiced a lot of population transfers in general to try and quell incipient rebellions by inserting 
foreign groups and then, you know, trying to make sure that the local indigenous population doesn't have the same kind of power base. Um, the Samaritans, however, have a very different account of their history. They say, no, we're not brought in from some outside source. We are the real Jews. And you guys made up all kinds of other stuff that is does not comport with our original history. We're really we, we're the people who came here from Egypt and so on. And the Samaritans continue to exist in Israel today, primarily in the Shem Nablus area. Fascinating population. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which may have looked a lot like the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed, however, a number of times uh, and destroyed by the Maccabees, the, Hash the Hashmonaim in particular. So the, uh, the ruins that we're looking at right now are later structures that were built on top of it by the Romans and elsewhere using this high point as a fortress. But nevertheless, we do have at least one example in Israel of a rival temple that existed for some hundred years. Then moving to Egypt, you have an especially fascinating temple in the region of a place called Elephantine, which is in the Upper Nile. Uh, it's called the Upper Nile, even though it's to the south, because the Nile River flows from south to north. So it is like a upriver on the Nile, the Upper Nile. And in Elephantine, there was originally a Jewish military outpost uh, most likely set up during the period that the Persians ruled the area, although possibly quite a bit earlier as well. And they left behind as well uh, a temple, which again seemed to function a lot like the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, there are actually excavations of that temple as well, which uh, give us some sense of the size and maybe the way it functioned. And it seemed to be largely a parallel to the temple, even though the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be the one and only. There's also been preserved because of the very arid climate of the region, uh, Aramaic correspondence between the Jews of Elephantine and the Jews of Judea. That's uh, absolutely fascinating, telling us what this community was like. Uh, Judea was, for example, trying to convince uh, or at least instruct the Jews of Elephantine, despite the fact that they had a functioning temple, just reminding them that on Passover, they're not allowed to drink beer, for example. Really interesting kind of communication. But the reality that uh, the rival temples to Jerusalem were so limited in number suggests that the original purpose of that first temple was largely achieved. On the other hand, another institution was developed uh, the synagogue. The term synagogue uh, means literally gathering place. It is a Greek translation of the term Beit Knesset. Uh, it was also referred to somewhat interchangeably as a prosuke, which means a place of prayer. And we have uh, a wide variety of archaeological data that support the creation of these kind of like small gathering places, which were not considered places of ritual sacrifice, but were, like the Greek terms, uh, somehow intended for the study of Jewish law and for communal prayer. Uh, we have uh, an incredible number of archaeological artifacts to support that, including this Theodotus inscription, which uh, you might be able to recognize it for what it is. It is one of the oldest Jewish traditions ever. Once you have a synagogue, you have to have a plaque. And this is a plaque from the, uh, you know, praising the donor 
for supplying the funds to build the synagogue and so on, saying nice things about him and about his family and so on. And we have plaques everywhere. Like, just go to your local synagogue. You'll find hundreds of plaques. There are plaques throughout Jewish history. Uh, Some of them are quite fascinating. This is from Smyrna in the third century. This is actually a transcription of it, uh, written in Greek, and it is written uh, in honor of a woman named Rufina, who is referred to as the Archisynagogus, the head of the synagogue. And in fact, remarkably, we have a lot of Jews, Jewish women, who are serving in that particular capacity. And this particular uh, inscription was actually not in a synagogue. It's it's in a, uh, a graveyard. Uh, specifically, warns people that if they abuse the graves in any way, they'll have to pay fines and so on. So, really, quite fascinating. But this first temple is ultimately destroyed by the Assyrian Nebuch- the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar. Excuse me. Uh, here's a 17th century representation of that. Completely ahistorical, but still a very evocative piece of art that describes that conflagration. And that first temple comes to an end in the year 586 as a result of local conflict with the imperial ruler in Babylonia. Moving to the second temple period, uh, that Babylonian empire falls to the neighboring Persian empire. And under Cyrus, there is an interesting new policy that is promulgated throughout this large multinational empire that Cyrus wants people to go back and invest in their own local traditions. Uh, This Cyrus Cylinder, which is a a document that records a series of dictates by the king, doesn't mention the Jews specifically, but essentially it says proclaim religious freedom for everybody, go back to your lands, rebuild your temples, and so on. And that's in fact what the Jews do. Uh, they, they return to Jerusalem after many of them were exiled to Babylonia. Uh, they have a lot of challenges at first. They're described primarily in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, but they take to this new environment quite effectively. There's some fascinating archaeological remains from that era, such as this coin, a ma'a, which has in uh, writing on the right, Yahud, the, the Jewish region of uh, what would be later Judea. And it's interesting because it has this extremely evocative uh, bas-relief of a face. One of the things that is most puzzling about this ancient Jewish period is that the Jews seem to, at some point, uh, suddenly remember the commandment about making um, graphic images of any living being, and they suddenly cease that for about two, three hundred years, uh, and then eventually they get back to it. But in the Persian period, clearly they're making coins with images, something which in the Maccabean period onward, they will stop entirely. Uh, the Maccabean period is really what we get to next. So you remember the The Persians allow the Jews to come back in the 500s, 519 most likely, they rebuild the second temple and exist for a couple hundred years until Alexander the Great comes charging out of Macedonia and conquers basically the known world. He dominates the eastern Mediterranean, taking over Egypt. Of course, Israel is in the way there, and he goes right through Central Asia, blows across to uh, northern India, Pakistan, regions like that. And what's fascinating about Alexander's period is that although he died a very young man, possibly of alcohol poisoning, uh, he united this vast and really quite 
diverse region under a single way of thinking, the Hellenistic way of thinking with Greek science and math and art and aesthetics. And, and the Jews loved it. The Jews were early adopters, which since we are in the season of Hanukkah, caused a lot of internal tension as some Jews essentially said, well, that's it. Greek culture is so vastly superior to our own. Why are we keeping anything? Let's like completely dive into Greek culture. A traditionalist faction led by Matis Yahu. I found I found myself very fortunate to actually found a photograph of Matis Yahu. I didn't know that any existed. That's a joke. It's hard to tell a joke on Zoom, but I hope you get it. Uh, Matis Yahu, who was a traditionalist living at Modi'in, sparks a rebellion which eventually blows up the entire country uh, and the, uh, the, the Greeks who are at that point ruled from uh, Syria, hence the Syrian Greeks are eventually driven out and uh, the Jews under a new Maccabean uh, dynasty, the Hashmonaim, are able to assert a level of independence in the middle of the second century before the Common Era. Tremendously uh, important battles, like such this battle here, which shows the Syrians attempting to use these terrifying weapons of war, these uh, war elephants with the you know uh, archers on the top uh, in turrets, uh, raining down death on the Jews. And here, Elazar, the brother of uh, of Yehuda Maccabee, uh, bravely dives under one of them and stabs it from below, and is unfortunately crushed by the falling elephant and uh, dies with that huge creature. Just a quick aside, I don't want to take too much time, but I've always enjoyed this, and it is, after all, still Hanukkah here in New York City. Um, this particular dramatic moment, which is described in the Book of Maccabees, is was so uh, appealing to European illustrators in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, that they really wanted to reproduce it in their illuminated manuscripts. The only problem was nobody knew exactly what an elephant actually looked like. And so you have all kinds of like really fanciful representations of elephants. This one looks sort of like some kind of cat with a long nose. Uh, this one's sort of like a salamander type creature. The ears are completely wrong. Uh, this one is my favorite. I think it inspired Dr. Seuss with that kind of trumpet-like horn. So it's very amusing. Look at these uh, medieval representations. But under the Persians, uh, the Jews were able to return, rebuild their temple. Under the Hashmonaim, they actually expanded the temple, and the temple once again became truly the central ritual uh, pivot around which all Jewish life uh, revolved. We move to the final period, and then I'll have a few minutes available for discussions. Um, the Hashmonaim enter a period of decline. Uh, ultimately, they succumb to many of the things they originally rebelled against at the uh, beginning of the revolt. Uh, and the Romans uh, come in in the year 63. They find that the Jews are at the very beginning of yet another civil war between the two sons of uh, uh, Shlom Tzion Hamalka. And uh, Pompey simply says, okay, well, we're just going to take this territory for ourselves. And Judea becomes a Roman province. 
they are allowed a certain degree of uh, independence. There are Jewish kings that exist at the pleasure of the Roman Republic, later empire, uh, but the, uh, uh, they essentially lose all their independence. And by the time you get to the second century, dissatisfaction with Rome is so great that the, uh, the war erupts in the year 66. The Romans ultimately, although they, fee- they uh, suffer some initial um, reversals of a rather remarkable nature, they ultimately bring in the, the best soldiers they have, and they totally crush the, uh, the Jewish rebels, including Josephus, who at this time has turned coat and has joined the Roman side. In the month of Av, of the year 70, they break through the temple walls into the center of the temple and they set it on flame. Uh, this is the event uh, which is commemorated every year by Jews on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av, a day of great sadness because it represents uh, the closing of a period in Jewish history and the severance of a specific relationship to God that the uh, presence of the temple signified. That's not at all the end of Judaism, however, because the rabbis are able to articulate a fascinating post-temple Judaism that is largely based on the study of text, the acts of kindness, and the uh, prayer in the synagogue uh, that has allowed the Jews remarkably to preserve themselves to the present day. And with that, I think I have uh, about seven minutes left for questions. Thank you so much for your endurance through this long presentation. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. If anyone has questions, they can throw them in the chat. They can let us know live in person here uh, on Zoom. Um, we'll give it. We'll give it a bit of time so people can ask. If not, we'll we'll shut it. We'll shut it off now. But people can feel free to ask. It's been my experience that no one likes to ask the first question. So if somebody has the second question, we'll start with that. It looks like we have one question in the chat. In the second temple, who had jurisdiction over the daily happenings? Well, don't forget, second temple, we're talking about a period of 500 years with uh, several different um, governing authorities, the Persians and later the Maccabees, the Hashmonaim, and then finally the Romans. Um, For the most part, the Jews themselves uh, had control over the daily occurrences in the temple. But by the time you get to Roman rule, there are definitely some measures taken by the Romans to uh, try and control uh, Jewish rebelliousness. Like, for example, the Romans would take hold of the the priestly robes, and uh, since the the Kohen Gadol had to wear these special clothes while performing the Avoda, uh, they would have to actually ask the Romans for permission to borrow those clothes so they could perform the Avoda. Uh, so that, that's an indication of the, the Jews had to ultimately cede a lot of authority to the Romans on uh, the functioning of the temple. Also a lot of interesting debate with among the Jews who was in charge. Uh, the, the Talmud portrays the situation in which so much of the leadership of the temple ritual was commanded by the Herodians in particular, and it was largely corrupt with the appointment of high priests who were really unworthy and, in fact, didn't last in the job. Um, but the Pharisees, which would be the rabbis, were still 
uh, you know, consulted to a great degree on how exactly are we supposed to perform this ritual and so on. So still a certain amount of power sharing going on. Here's another question. I'll, I'll read it out just, just so we uh, have it on the recording. So Milton asks, to which extent the Kohanim of the Second Temple era during the Roman occupations were involved in political affairs with Roman authorities? Also, how true is it that the Essenes were against the Temple authorities? Okay, so th there's two questions there, um, but I'll answer both for the same price. The, the first question is, you know, Second Temple era, again, 500 years, lots of time. Even the Roman era itself extends for over a century. It's about 120 years. Uh, yeah. So, it, it, you know, we're generalizing over that large period. But if we look towards the end of that period, uh, the, the Kohane, the, the uh, high priests were deeply involved in uh, local intrigue and uh, heavily dependent on Roman authority for their uh, position. Um, if you look at the cycle of how fast they churn through the revolving doors of the uh, Kahuna Gadola, it, it, it's remarkable. So definitely deeply involved in it. Occasionally, there would be some differences. Like, for example, one of the, the very last uh, high priests attempted to set up some policies, which... Uh, you know, were popular, like uh, universal schooling, and he was almost immediately assassinated by uh, Jewish uh, factions that disagreed with him. Uh, the second question, how true is it that the Essenes were against the temple authorities? So the Essenes or the Essene were, uh, you know, we're not exactly sure who they were. The sole source we have for the Essene and what they believed is Josephus. So everything Josephus says has to be understood. What was trying jo to Josephus to get across? If, however, as many scholars do, we identify the Essenes with the Qumran community, and there are lots of things that seem to be kind of similar about them, then uh, they, were, they were most certainly against the, uh, the temple authorities. Uh, there's a certain amount of debate. Were they like rebel Pharisees? Were they rebel Sadducees? But they certainly wanted to separate and have nothing to do with those awful people. They, I would say that right now, sort of like the consensus is forming, that they were very much against the entire Hashmonaic enterprise, and they viewed the, the Hashmonaim as betrayers of the fundamental trust of Judaism. That's a very sophisticated question. And if anyone um, wants to unmute, they can ask a question as well. Okay. Hello. I have a hard stop in three minutes because I got to jump into another meeting. But uh, so I have three minutes. I'll pass. I'll pass. Chalukah Sameach to you still. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I guess that's it then? Sure. We can call it there. I really appreciate everyone's time. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Abramson. And if anyone wants to keep up with what we're doing at the Chabura, we've got our YouTube channel, we've got a podcast, and we've got a members, um, a membership. Everyone can head to thechabura.com slash join, check out what we're all about, what we're doing, and really appreciate everyone's time. Hanukkah Sameach to all of us here in the U.S., and have a great day. Take care, everyone. Thank you.